Welcome to the Fourth Watch Podcast, a curated conversation with some of the most interesting voices in the media. I'm Steve Krakauer. We're halfway through 2021. Let's check in on the media and today, actually, reality TV. Today, I'm joined by Rachel Campos Duffy, co-host of Fox and Friends Weekend. This is episode 20. From being a part of one of the most iconic reality TV casts ever to reality TV today, to family and faith, we start at The View and conservative women's treatment in the media. I want to start um, a little bit farther back. I, I, I know we're, we're you're new at Fox and Friends Weekend. I want to also talk about that and, and your time at Fox. Sure. But I want to go back to 1999 first, um, which it was, uh, I was doing some research for this, found that was a uh, a tryout that you were doing. You were down, I guess, the final three uh, at The View for an open seat uh. there. Um, and I <laughs> We're going memory lane here. <laughs> I'm going to start memory lane. We got a couple memory lane stops before we uh, get to the current. Okay. But um, there's, the, there's an incredible New York Post story from 1999, which is, I, I guess it, it's in some ways it's good that things have changed a little bit. But the way that uh, not just you, but all of the, the the final three women, which happened to be uh, Lisa Ling, who got the seat, you and Lauren Sanchez, who's now married to Jeff Bezos, which is kind of funny um, <laughs> that she was one of the. Um, we all took such different turns in life, haven't we? <laughs> it, it, it is. It's a funny uh, uh, mix there. I mean, I wonder, you know, I'm going to ask you about what your life would have been like if you had gotten won that. But I wonder what Lauren Sanchez's life would have been like if she had uh, won that. But anyway, um, it says, uh, this, this is from the piece in 1999, we can't hold someone's lack of experience and or depth against them unless they, their lack is shoved in our face every day. Um, the the way that, that not just you, but all of the, the women uh, who, you know, fairly young women uh, who were up the role were described is, is really pretty gross. And I, and I guess I want to start with kind of those t- early years of breaking into the media industry, um, t- talking a little bit about not just like from as a woman, but also, you know, as someone who is kind of a, you know, a conservative voice, what what some of those early years of media coverage were like? And I wonder how much has changed. It's such a great question because, you know, my first exposure into the media world was through the real world on MTV. And I was cast as sort of the first conservative who happened to be Hispanic person on MTV. And I, to this day, I still get people who say, I never saw anyone that was conservative, let alone Latina, you know, on on, you know, MTV before you. So that that was interesting. I think that's what tapped Barbara Walters, um, you know, and she got me to audition for the show. She she sought me out for that. Um, I, you know, I just think that the 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 the, the view was hard for me because, um, in terms of not getting it, I really wanted that job. And I was up for it again when Elizabeth Hasselbeck, when Lisa left, Elizabeth Hasselbeck was up for it. I went down to the finals there as well. And I very much wanted to have a perch like that as a conservative woman to show that we exist, um, that, that we can, you know, contribute to the conversation. I just think that so many shows like The View have, um, you know, not done a good job of portraying the full range of conservative women. So yeah. I, I guess that's what I would say ab- about that. And I, it, was, it was a real disappointment for me that I, you know, twice did not um, end up getting that show because I, I felt like I could have really contributed and represented sort of the middle of America um, perspective. Because I think a lot of times the, the conservatives that they put on um, 
maybe we're have a, a few more coastal views than I think the middle of the country do. Yeah. And I wonder, I mean, I thought, you know, particularly if we're, if we're hopping around a little bit, but in 2021, there's something about the, the divergent in the, you know, conservative and the Republican party, um, that, that, I think that that only is even more clear now. Uh, and I, and you mentioned the real world, we're going to spend some time on the real world. Cause I'm, I, I was a huge fan of that season, um, and that show. So I want to talk about that also, but, yeah, but that, back yeah. to the view for a second. So, um, you know, we mentioned Elizabeth Hassel. Uh, Megan McCain now, and you think of like Elizabeth Hasselbeck sparring with Rosie O'Donnell, and then now Megan sure. McCain, and the way that she, that she, I would say, is is often sparring with the Joy Behar's and the Sunny Hostins of the world, and I. I I think it's a little bit of a double-edged sword seeing that now. I, I I wonder what you look at it as as a as a viewer and kind of seeing it, but but someone who was very clearly on the inside also. I I think the view actually has a pretty big impact, and it's and it gets talked about and written about mm-hmm. in in ways. And and I I wonder what that kind of friction uh, f- between both sides, it, whether that's good, bad, or maybe a little bit of both. So. During the time that I auditioned, I also came in between. I would fill in um, occasionally on The View. And it was interesting, the reaction that I would get from conservatives. I might post on social media, hey, I'm going to be on The View on such and such day. Tune in. And the response I would get from conservatives was, why are you going on that show? Or I'll pray for you. Or, you know, like they, like conservatives really didn't like that I was going on that show. And as somebody who, you know, I got my start in, in television on, you know, in a pop culture show, like the real world, I understand the impact, um, of pop culture and the view is a very impactful show. There there's, there's a reason why Joe Biden and John McCain and, you know, everybody wants to be on that show, you know, when they were, when they were running for president, um, you know, everybody wants to be on that show. Every congressman may hate you know, the show, but they all want to be on that show because it does have a cultural impact. And I think a lot of times conservatives are kind of snooty, maybe (laughs) because they're not invited to the table very much, that they're kind of like scoff at pop culture. Uh, But it is, you know, culture first, politics follows. And that show is very impactful. So people can knock it for being, you know, you know, a bunch of ladies screaming at each other or whatever. But a lot of people watch that show and and learn about politics through that show, whether we like it or not. And so the question is for conservatives is, you know, you you need a seat at that table, you know, and, you know, are you going to, you know, think it's beneath you or are you going to join the conversation and try and change people's point of view? And I've always thought when I was on that show that my my job on that show was, one, when I was ever, when I was in the green room thinking about, you know, 15 seconds before airtime, I always reminded myself that the audience that I was speaking for was not in that room, was not at the table, was not even in the audience, because most of that audience are Manhattan, you know, um, type people. And so I, I really felt like it was important that people from the middle of the country be represented yeah. there. It's an interesting point because I, I think about uh, I'm someone you know media junkie. I'm on Twitter all the time, is even despite the fact that I, I wish I wasn't. <laughs> but me too. Oh I, my god, we're in the same boat, Steve. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, but but it, I I also can I think step back and say, look, I'm not representative of of the typical person in the country, um, and I have you know most of my my friends. I'm I'm in Dallas. Most of my friends you know are way outside of of the media industry. Are not cable news viewers even necessarily. Um, and, I, and I think that, 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 you know, another thing to your point, not, not just that culture, you know, is ahead of politics, but 
so many people uh, don't have politics as the centerpiece of their lives. And and, yeah. and 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 I wonder, you know, again, I mean, I go I go back to the view as an example of it, but there's other examples of it also where, uh, w- to your point, it seems like the right in a lot of ways has seeded mm-hmm. culture uh, yes. and, and that part of the conversation. And, and, I, and I wonder, you know, if you think that they're, I guess if you think that there's still value to pushing back and to, and to having a voice in that in that conversation. I do. But I also think that we have to build other um, more, our own version of culture as well. I think we need to participate in the one that's existing that is clearly dominated by liberals and liberal gatekeepers that we can't just see that. And that also we need to start building our own infrastructure in terms of, of culture as well. You know, um, with with the view, I think, and, and other shows, I think one of the things that they've done very effectively because either we're not invited to the table or we don't want to be at the table, and I mean that, you know, not just the view table, but in general in pop culture, is that they try, one of the tactics that the left uses is to paint us as weird, right? And you yeah. saw that very clearly with Mitt Romney. Remember, they like Mitt Romney now, but we forget what they, how they treated the Romney family with their five kids and they made them look like this weird, you know, Stepford Mormon family and right, all on the roof. SN- <laughs> yes. And the, and the SNL sketches yeah. made the, the, the kids look weird. That is one of their tactics is to go, they're weird. You don't really want to be part of them. And so whenever we do, you know, pop culture, shows or shows that are, you know, uh, readily, you know, the, the rest of the country looks at. It's so important for us to just be ourselves and be and show that we're normal people. And in fact, a lot more normal than many of the people that are dominating the culture right now. I mean, if you look at, at even The View, um, you know, Joy Behar is not a very real, I mean, I like her personally, but her story and who she is not as relatable to the rest of the country as, as other people. So I think that we have to really not just be in there, but be who we are and show that there's nothing weird about being conservative. In fact, you know, millions and millions of us. And even in this last the last few months since the election, again, they tried to use that tactic that somehow if you were a Trump supporter, you were an insurrectionist yeah. and you were, a, you know, a traitor. I mean, this is these are the tactics of the left. And we you know, we have to, A, not be afraid of, of those smears, but also show that they're not true. And the only way to do that is for people to see us and, and get to know us. The true story of seven strangers, including Puck, Pedro, and Rachel, looking back at real world San Francisco and the state of reality TV now. It's a lot more messy than, than what we see portrayed. And I think to that point, um, bring me to the real world, third season, San Francisco, 1994. Uh, really, I, I think one of the most iconic seasons of television generally, um, but but also certainly reality TV. Uh, you had Puck, you had you, you had Pedro, Zamora. Um, and I, I didn't realize, I, I, I watched it, I think, about a year or two after it came out um, when it, on reruns, because they reran it a lot on, on MTV at the time. Um, and I didn't yeah. even realize that, that, you know, after that incredible season, um, Pedro died just hours after the last episode aired in, in November yeah. of 1994. Um, I, I want to get into a little bit of kind of like reflecting on, on that, that season, but before we do just at that time, what was it like to be on a show like that really in the very early days of reality TV? 
So when I did it, I, I was very young. I had no idea what really what I was getting myself into. I had seen a couple episodes of the New York season, yeah. um, just kind of happened to see it, didn't know what it would be. And obviously the third season really exploded in terms of its popularity with our generation. It's really hard for people who are young today to understand how, you know, important MTV was at that time, you know. Everybody watched MTV. No one watches MTV now. Um, everyone watched MTV at the time. And so when I applied, I literally did it because I thought it would help my social life. You know, I was like, oh, this will be great for my <laughs> for my love life or my party life. Like, this is going to be awesome. And I had no idea really what I was getting into. And I have no regrets about doing it, but I have to say, I really went in very blind. I think there were some members of the cast who were a lot more savvy than I was. Um, and it was, I think that Pam and Judd, um, I can like now in retrospect, remember, you know, that they were very aware and even talked about like the impact of the show, but it sort of went over my head. I really wasn't aware of it. I think clearly Pedro understood exactly what he was doing. Hmm. And he knew that this was, you know, a pivotal moment as a gay man, as a gay man living with AIDS. And remember it's 1990, you know, three or four, 94. And there was no cure for AIDS and we didn't know much about it. And here we are living in a house with somebody. And so it was a very, it was a very interesting, you know, cultural moment in that regard. And so, yeah, I, I didn't understand what was going on. I do think there were a couple people that understood the importance of that moment, but, um, I, I have no regrets about doing it. I thought it was just, um, an amazing experience. It clearly changed the trajectory of my life. I didn't get, I didn't marry Jeff Bezos. I married someone far cuter, um, who, <laughs> another uh, real world alum. Who, um, Yes, I married an, a, a real world alum from the fifth season, uh, Sean Duffy, who we ended up doing a reality TV show um, together, um, a, a reunion type show together. And we've been together ever since. Um, and we've been married 22 years now. So, you know, for me, it was a great experience, but definitely did not understand, you know, the kind of impact it would have and even just how stressful it, I, it was there were stressful moments actually doing the show because you're being filmed for, you know, 18 hours a day. Right. And that's kind of weird. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I have to say, I mean, for people who haven't seen the season, I, I would suggest, you know, trying to find a way to do it. It's, it's so unlike the reality TV of today. And, and you mentioned, you know, no one's watching MTV yeah. now. I think that's true. I, I have to say like, I, you know, guilty pleasure. Like I loved like Jersey shore, like the first seasons of Jersey shore. Like it was, you know, these mm -hmm. people, like, who are they? It's like this anthropological experiment that's happening. But, it was nowhere close to the, what was happening during that season uh, in San Francisco. And, and really, the I would say like there was five, six, seven seasons that were kind of like that. I, I feel like, I don't know, I watched up until about Seattle uh, when there were still kind of issues mm -hmm. at the forefront of it and it felt very real. And then it kind of got into uh, yeah. into what reality TV of today. But it, it was incredible. And your arc on that, I know you, you reflected on this recently in a piece with The rap where you were talking about how, um, you know, you were obviously, a, you know, a conservative on the show. And then, you know, you and and, and Pedro, who was sort of, you know, was the, the gay progressive, uh, you know, as you talk about with, with AIDS. And then you started, there was sort of like maybe a little bit of friction. And then you became really close friends. And, and you, you talk about like, um, 
in, in the piece, in the interview with The Wrap, how there was, uh, you know, this this sort of fake virtue signaling now and, and self-censorship that happens, and it wouldn't be able to happen in, as you described, woke cancel culture today. Um, where do you yeah. think of, like, the evolution of where we've gone with, with showing kind of reality? So, so first of all, I love, I still love reality TV. Um, I, I watch the real housewives. I love it. I was watching the bachelor that has a lot of elements of what you're talking about in this last season. I think they destroyed the franchise with, with wokeness. And we can talk about that. Um, but I, I, recently I actually was DM'd by Rick Grinnell, uh, (laughs) you know, Rick Grinnell about the real world. He was also watching, a, a, a. you know, the whole season, I guess it was playing somewhere and he was watching it and kind of remembering from when he had first watched it and how impactful it was. Um, and he's just like, you know, Rachel, I just love that you were really honest. Like you just kind of said what you thought. I mean, when we moved into that house, you know, we're moving into a house with somebody who has AIDS and I had questions about the actual living arrangements, you know, and, and the impact on me. And that was a little bit taboo, but I still asked those questions and I got some heat for it. Um, and other people agreed with me. I think I would be absolutely excoriated now for doing for asking any of the questions we had. And so many of the social issues that we talked about on that show, there were racial issues, there were class issues, there was a lot of politics spoken about during that show uh, or that season. Um, I don't think you could have, and it was already there, you know, that was still, you know, you could already sense some political correctness among my roommates, but I still felt the freedom to say that. I wonder nowadays the consequences of a 22 year old speaking honestly about race and, and, and AIDS and all these things I might've been, um, I think the social consequences, the professional consequences, um, because of the internet and because of just this woke cancel culture we're living in, I think they, it might've been too much. I mean, I, I don't think you can do that show again because it's just, um, you're going to get people who are either afraid to speak or you're going to get people who are just fake and yeah. just spewing a bunch of, like you said, um, you know, virtue signaling and and just trying to to pose. And I don't think we get anywhere as a culture like that. And I th- I actually do think that the real world had a cultural impact um, and, and ultimately for the gay community, a political impact. I think it was the beginning of gay marriage for them. And we had a, a, an engagement ceremony um, on television in 1993, um, I think that, that 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 was culturally impactful for a lot of people, and so it had it had an impact. But how do you have that happen? How do you have all these conversations happen if everyone's super fake and worried that if they say what they think? They're going to be punished for the rest of their lives. Right. Yeah. No, it is. It is incredible. I mean, to look at like the gay marriage trajectory, um, I believe the numbers I, I saw recently are that there's more Republicans supporting gay marriage than there were Democrats supporting gay marriage only 15 years ago, um, which is just an incredible. I mean, obviously, yeah. Obama ran against gay marriage in 2008. We've become a very it's hard long to way. remember that. That's yeah. right in a very, very quick amount of time, which is, which is good. Um, but I also, you know, in, in, to your point, looked at, um, there was a, a 2014 interview you did with Buzzfeed's, uh, Kate Arthur, which I have to you know, this is an audio podcast, so I can't link it, but I'll, maybe I'll link it in the description. It, it was really, I think a, f- a fantastic interview. And even that, I wonder if that could have happened today, um, in, in terms of the way we can't just be honest about having a conversation. I think conversation is so important, but in that interview, you talk about the myth of liberal tolerance 
Because one of yeah. the things that, you know, you talk about on that show, and I would say, you know, has very clear, you know, reverberations today is you would, you know, go and do these sorts of things with, um, you know, gay pride parade with Pedro, things that were very much out of your comfort zone. And, mm -hmm. and even then, um, but particularly now, you know, the idea of certain, you know, progressive people going to, I, I think it was Empower America conference with you in 1994 yeah. or, do you know, I actually met, I met Paul Ryan at, during that conference, wow. actually. Um, interestingly, Paul Ryan was a young staffer at Empower America and they happened to be in the San Francisco area. And I brought my, my roommates there and my roommates, like, I mean, there's a whole episode about how they they didn't want to go um, behind my back. Of course, you know, that's how the real world works. You find out what everyone says <laughs> on right. the episode behind your back. Yeah, any confessional. <laughs> um, uh... They were like, oh, yeah, we have to go to this stupid Republican thing with Rachel. And then once we were there, interestingly, they were really triggered by how white everyone was was there <laughs> and how weird it would it is that me being Hispanic would want to be there. Um, because, you know, I mean, so you see a lot of this racial stuff, you know, goes goes way back that we're seeing now. It's just on, you know, steroids right now. But yeah, you know that when people ask me, Steve, what I learned during the real world, I always give that answer. The myth of liberal tolerance. And I think we see it today even more so. I if you talk to the average conservative, they are tolerant. They may not agree with you, but they are all about you just doing you and let me do me. And, you know, it's the liberals who want to punish people who don't think the same way they do, who want to shame them and, and, and make sure they never get a job again or whatever. I mean, it is they are the most intolerant people. And, you know, that that's the lesson I learned, Steve. Yeah. And I, and I do think that it's it's a minority of liberals, I would just say also, although they happen to be the loudest ones and they're the ones on Twitter who can now galvanize behind campaigns against someone. Um, you, you mentioned The Bachelor. What, what, what do you you know, what was it about what happened? Obviously, Chris Harrison's now gone uh, because he, you know, dared to uh, urge some grace and compassion. But what was it about the season and kind of the fallout that that turned you against it? You know what really bothered me? So I'm somebody who, I first of all, I believe in love. I'm married to, you know, 22 years to, to my husband. I love him now more than I ever even loved him when I first, you know, married him. So I believe in love and I believe you can meet, you can find love on reality TV because I did. So I love The Bachelor and I'm an optimist about that. I can compare my experience of falling in love on a reality TV show, and it was for real, obviously, nine kids later, 22 years, um, with what goes on in, in The Bachelor. Did you know that on this season of The Bachelor, which was the first time they had an African-American um, bachelor, they had diversity coaches come in before to talk to everybody. Hmm. Now, I can tell you that did not happen to me when I was on MTV. <laughs> I don't think Thank that job God existed. that didn't happen to me. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, talk about make work. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's like, this is ruining love. This is ruining love. I can tell you when, with my husband, I don't have any recollection of us on the show, we're off the show when we were dating, talking about a race. Yeah. Uh, honest to God, I don't. I, I don't recall us talking about our race. Now, we may have talked about, you know, Mexican food, and, you know, and how <laughs> little of it he's had, but it was never a racial skin color conversation. It was never, this obsession is ruining love. And you can see in The Bachelor, this is what ticked me off. I called it when he met Rachel 
as they, you know, the, all the bachelorettes come in and they meet him, I could see it. It was love at first sight. He was smitten with this girl. Rachel and as the, yeah. They, yeah, Rachel Kirkconnell. And as they whittled it down, I knew she was going to be the final and I knew he was going to pick her. And then this incident came up where the, the photo emerged about her and, uh, you know, having gone to this antebellum party in her sorority days. And then the woke mob and all the former bachelor people wrote a letter and they were all outraged and triggered. And the poor girl, she apologized, I thought, in a very humble genuine way and then chris came, chris harrison came to her defense and that was not enough and if you see in the reunion episode at the very end so he doesn't pick her picks no one he looks angry he was pressured i believe into taking on this position of that you know what she had done was irreconcilable and she had to do this on her own and her journey and race. And I just, it was so horrible. Yeah. And it, it, I, I think it's destroyed the franchise and it's destroying love. And I, you know what? I think you can take what happened there and you can expand it out to the rest of the culture. The, the key to America being that, that country that Martin Luther King said we should be, where we are judged by who we are, our con the content of our character, not the, the color of our skin. One of the keys to that is interracial marriage. And I just think they're ruining this and they're forcing people to think about, you know, obsess on their race versus think about what, what really matters in the person that you fall in love with. Yeah. I looked at my husband and I said, he's Catholic. He's um, a good person. He has a good work ethic. He loves kids. I mean, these are all the things people should be thinking about, not what color of skin the person has. It's it's, it's an incredible story. I just wrote about this for, I, I, I didn't watch the season, um, but I, I kind of followed it. And it was amazing, you know, to think that in a bubble where there's no social media, he picks the person that obviously is probably not racist, considering that she wants to, you know, marry the, the first black bachelor. Right. And what was amazing, I didn't even realize this. They're now together. They are now back together, um, which uh, I didn't know that. Far. Yeah, of course. I, I mean, because love, right? You know, it it it, it can uh, it, right it, love. It's beyond the woke uh, the woke mob and what they can do. Coming up, Campus Duffy's family with fellow reality TV alum Sean Duffy, nine kids, and whether she'd encourage or discourage her kids from joining the media and politics. But first, another edition of How Did This Get Published? Ellie Kemper is an actress whose whole vibe is being earnestly nice. The vibe was the entirety of her public persona up until very recently when she was labeled a racist by several random accounts on Twitter and then naturally the media followed suit. Here's a backstory. Kemper was a teenager in St. Louis and someone found some newspaper clippings about her participation in something called the Veiled Prophet Ball, which was started by a racist, although not someone in the KKK, which was originally written about her. And her participation as a teenager in 1999 happened more than 20 years after the random event was integrated and was no longer a segregated event. Also, of course, it happened more than 20 years ago. She was apparently named the Veiled Prophet of Love and Beauty, which is sort of weird, but whatever. The media was outraged, or at least performatively so. Perhaps the most insane piece in all of this was published by the AV Club, the news arm of The Onion, which has become a sort of woke gawker-type outlet, which tweeted, This insanity... Oh, great. Ellie Kemper is yet another rich white celebrity with a racist past. This was the same headline of the piece, which, although now, has been updated to, Oh, great. Ellie Kemper participated in a ball with racist skeletons in its closet. Oh, great. Here's a quote from the article, which is still up. You might be wondering what's so wrong about being crowned queen of some ball. 
Well, the Fair St. Louis was previously known as the Veiled Profit Ball, and it is racist as fuck. The AV Club may have been the worst, but they weren't alone. Here was something else particularly terrible from the Daily Beast, which wrote that not only was Kemper, quote, the queen of a racist ball, but she was also, gasp, escorted by a bush. Apparently, she was escorted by the uncle of George W. Bush. Unsurprisingly, because of how our culture is in 2021, Kemper has apologized profusely in an Instagram post, claiming she should have educated herself better at the time about the, quote, racist, sexist, and elitist past of this group, but promises she'll now, quote, continue to educate myself and use my privilege in support of the better society I think we're capable of becoming. Perhaps, but not with ridiculous media coverage of this story. The AV Club, The Daily Beast, and others. How did this get published? More with Rachel in a minute, but first, the Fourth Watch podcast is presented by The First TV. The First is a new network for free speech and big ideas featuring Bill O'Reilly, Dana Lash, Buck Sexton, and more. It's a forum for new thought, new approaches, and an enlightening voice for a new America that embraces the founding principles and ideals that form the greatest country on the planet. The First is free. No subscription, no credit cards, no trials, no censorship. Watch The First TV on Pluto TV, Distro TV, Apple TV, The First TV app, and more. Go to thefirsttv.com to learn more. And now, back to Rachel Campos Duffy. So you mentioned your husband, uh, uh, Sean Duffy, who was on the season of uh, Real World Boston, then a, a congressman for eight years. I was trying to think, uh, make a list. I think you, Sean, and then I would say The Miz are the most successful Real World alums in very different ways. But I would just, <laughs> I would just kind of put that as a, a list there. You guys have uh, uh, been married for a long time, and you have... Uh, you, you said he, he liked kids. Well, you've got nine kids together, um, uh, which, yeah. which is, uh, uh, is a is a big family. I mean, it would have been a big family, you know, 50 years ago, uh, but is now uh, almost unheard of. Um, w- tell me about about that, the, the, the family aspect of your life. We talked a little bit about career and kind of moving up to it. But but what does that mean to you? And, and, and you know, having this large family that that, you know, you share with with uh, with Sean. Well, I never planned on having nine kids. I never planned one of my kids. <laughs> um, we, Sean and I always laugh when we hear people going, we're working on our third baby. I'm like, oh my God, it never happened for us that way. It just kind of happened. Um, <laughs> it's God's plan. And so, uh, you know, listen, it's it's an interesting life. It's, it's, it's a happy life. I think that, you know, it's when you have a big family, things just happen differently. You know, you're, you're late to things more. <laughs> um, but I think the consequence for kids, um, there's some negative sides. I think that my kids all wish they had a little more alone time with me and we were always trying to work on that. But I do think they are um, the opposite of what our culture does with kids be- because of the nature of the size of our family. And by that, I mean, a lot of kids these days are highly coddled. They believe that they're the center of the world. And when you're one of nine, you can't be, right? That's true. And you learn, you you have to, in order for me to survive as a mom with nine kids and doing all the things Sean and I do, we delegate a lot. I mean, my kids have chores and they have to help out. And in the end, I think that 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 makes them better people. Um, and I think that I have had teachers that say, you know, I can tell that, you know, your kids, I knew your kids came from a big family because they're always ready to, to help or they can anticipate other people's needs and in, in class. And they're the first ones to jump in and help. So I, 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 I enjoy hearing that kind of stuff. Cause I do think that the culture is, um, very much, coddles kids and and you seeing this generation of children who don't know how to do common sense things like their laundry um and and have a lot of sort of me 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 yeah. um you know 
I think of Meghan Markle when I think of that. <laughs> I'm like, that's a girl who probably should have been in a big family. I think it would have cured her. <laughs> <laughs> Too much attention. Um, well, and, and also with yeah. social media. I mean, it's just, you know, when you're when you're yeah. pining for likes, uh, it's a different kind of mentality, I would say, than if you didn't even have that as yeah. part of your life, which, you know, wasn't for so long. Um, I feel sorry for kids because of that. That's yeah. true. That's such a great point, Steve. It's it's a it's a it's hard to compare our childhoods because of that factor. What uh, what's the age range you have? The oldest and the youngest. The oldest is twenty one, and the youngest will be two in September. And the youngest has Down syndrome. She has um, special needs. Right, right. How has that been in sort of you know adding uh, to your family with with you know an, an additional challenge, but but also you know someone who uh, obviously you know is 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 now just part of the part of the family. Yeah, you know it's been really interesting. You see how your family. I think our family's better for it. I think I always say she's the only thing we all agree on. Um, mm-hmm. She's she's just very there's a there's an innocence and a um, a beauty about her that is you know different than everybody else. She everybody just sort of falls in love with her. She's just so sweet. And I also I think that you know we, we've all had to kind of pitch in a little bit with with her as well. And I think she's given my kids um, a heart for people with challenges in a way that, um, you know, I, I don't think they would have if it wasn't so personal to them. And so there have been issues that have come up, like, you know, right now a big topic is abortion, and, you know, with di- people who are diagnosed with Down syndrome. I think it's like close to 80 to 90% end in abortion. And, um, you know, Christy Nome has come out with bill, a bill to ban that and other governors as well. And so these are issues that are now really personal to us because we we can see she's a human and she deserves to live and she has every right to live um, as as anybody else. And this idea that we can somehow judge, you know, what is perfect or what is acceptable in order to live um, is interesting. I just found out recently that she, she, by the way, she's had heart surgery because she had a lot of children with Down syndrome are born with heart conditions. Um, but if she had needed a new heart, she would not have been on the, she would not have been allowed on the list because, you know, children without Downs, for, I have no idea. I've I just learned about this like and I thought it was station. such a wow. strange, yeah. So, so because of her condition, uh, because of her having Downs, she wouldn't have been eligible and thank God we were able to repair her heart. But I started to think about that and going, well, I, why wouldn't she? I mean, right. she's still a child and needs a heart and. Why isn't it done that way? So I don't know. Well, yeah, it's de- it's definitely some some perspective there. That's 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 great. Um, your your oldest, I believe, is Evita, uh, who uh, is yes. a uh, who who's emerging into the media herself. Uh, she's uh, writes with yeah. the Federalist, and she's on Fox sometimes. Uh, what would you say? I mean, you've you've gotten you know you've been there uh, on the reality TV side. You've got Sean with politics. You obviously have tons of media experience. Would w- any areas that you would persuade or dissuade Evita from getting into in those? Well, I think it's important that every child is different. So I think not every child will want to do that. Evita clearly has an interest in in it. And no, I I, I would um, I would encourage her to, to continue what she's doing. I, I hope she goes on to to law school. I think that that um, experience and that kind of thinking might 
improve her, you know, make her make her better than me uh, on television. <laughs> so I hope she does that. She's at the University of Chicago right now. But I think that, you know, she got into all of this actually because of a cancel culture experience at the University of Chicago. She was, um, it was actually very traumatic. She oh, wow. d- pr- participated in a in a political program through their political uh, political organization on campus that's supposedly bipartisan. And she, it was pre, it was just when coronavirus was coming out and she put up a sign. They wanted kids to put up a sign to say, I'm voting because this. And so some people would say, I'm voting because I care about Medicare or I care about women's rights or whatever. And she wrote, because coronavirus won't kill, uh, won't, won't destroy America but socialism will. <laughs> and for some reason, this created an absolute firestorm on her campus. And she was much younger than was a couple of years. It was like last, last year. Yeah, last yeah, year. Yeah. And um, it created a firestorm on her campus. She was had death threats. She was basically threatened. Um, it was just terrible what happened to her. And she was the kind of kid who, you know, initially was like, you know, she was crying. It was really upsetting, but kind of came, wrote an op-ed and said, I'm the whiteboard girl. And this is why I wrote that. And this is why I think the university is lying when they say that they're tolerant and open to different points of view. And, and Chicago likes to say that they're this free speech campus. But how do you have free speech when you in any way diverge in opinion and you know, all, you know, friends turned against her, um, you know, death threats. I mean, it, it's just, again, it goes back to what you and I originally talked about. How, as a country, can we really be real um, and 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 come to a con- consensus on anything if that's the reaction people have for somebody having a different point of view? And I think that experience was very formative for her. Um, she came out stronger. But I, as a mom, Steve, I know that some kids including some of my own, I think it could have crushed them. Right. And so that's that's what I worry about. I don't worry about the Evitas of the world. I worry about all the kids out there who are self-censoring, um, who are afraid to say what they think, or who who just go, you know what, I'm just going to accept the, you know, the main, the, the, the way they're telling me to think, because it's just easier to get through life that yeah. way. The Fourth Watch Lightning Round is coming up, but first we talk Fox News and Faith. You just started at Fox and Friends Weekend uh, with co-host uh, Will Kane and Pete Hegseth, who I know a little bit and great guys. Uh, how's that going? And also, yeah, just in, ge- in general, you know, wh- what do you think of Fox News's role right now in the larger media landscape? So, first of all, I love working with Pete and Will. Um, the, it's a four-hour weekend show, and it literally flies by because we're having so much fun. Um, and the conversations on the break are sometimes, you know, as good as the ones on camera. Um, we just we we all really like each other, um, and we all love our families, and we love our country. And I think we share that in common. And I think it's it's been it's been just amazing working with them. And I learn a lot from them. They're both super pros, and I love that. Um, you know, Fox's role is really important. I think there's a reason why when Obama got into office, one of the first things he wanted to do was destroy Fox News. If you remember, he had this, you know, he had this information minister type lady who was asking people to send in fake news stories and all this kind of stuff. They really were going after Fox News and they understand the impact of Fox News on the landscape because really um, with, with outside of some of the, the, the web and news outlets out there and so many of the great podcasts, um, you know, 
that's it. I mean, if you're not watching Fox News, you probably didn't know that six months ago or more, um, people were already questioning the origins of the coronavirus from the lab. You would know that there was a controversy about early treatments um, uh, for, for COVID. I mean, there are so many things that Fox was able to cover that other networks just don't, don't do. And I think, um, that they, that because of that, I think they, they, they are just so important. I don't know what this country would be without Fox news right now. Yeah. It's, it's interesting, obviously, you know, in this current environment, but I also wonder like, you know, Fox news itself is, is kind of diverse in terms of, I mean, in a lot of ways, but certainly, you know, ideologically in some ways, because, you know, the conservative movement, the Republican Party, there's kind of different wings that are emerging now. I mean, in a, in a very loose way, we could call it the Trump wing and the Cheney wing, for example. Um, wh- what do you think a of- tiny, tiny wing. <laughs> okay. All right. Maybe. Um, but what do you think of, of kind of, you talked mentioned Paul Ryan too. I mean, there, there's definitely different <laughs> factions and I, and I wonder yeah, like as, as that emerges, particularly as we get towards 2024, you know, what is Fox News's role in that? What do you think your role in sort of being able to kind of navigate those, those, you know, challenging waters? Yeah, well, for, for one, I think that Fox does a really good job of including liberal voices. Um, most shows have a liberal voice on there, um, giving a different point of view. And one of the things I think that's different about Fox and other networks that do these sort of left and right conversations is that we actually really like our Democrats and our liberals, and we treat them really well. And we feel like they have a, a valuable voice on our network. And so I, um, there are genuine friendships between hosts um, and contributors um, on both sides of the aisle. And I think that's something that Fox should be very, very proud of. Yeah. Um, I think that, um, you know, moving forward, I think that one of the things that I'm proud about it at, for example, at, at Fox and Friends Weekend, you know, I live in rural Wisconsin. Uh, Pete is from Minnesota, um, goes back and forth between Minnesota quite a bit. Will lives in Texas. And so I think one of the things that is interesting for me is to be part of a show that is not ashamed of the middle of America. In fact, and that in fact reflects the middle of America. If you look at other morning news shows, um, they're very coastal, they're very elitist. They have one point of view. And I, I think that that's the role that, that I'm, I'm happy to play. I'm happy to represent people who think like me, because I think a lot of people don't get to see their themselves reflected back um, in the media uh, on a platform as, as big as Fox and Friends, for example, yeah. but other shows as well. Yeah, that's true. Uh, it kind of brings me to the last question here before we get to the lightning round, which sure. is uh, about something that I think is not really reflected very much on within the larger media landscape. Um, and I've talked about this a little bit um, on this podcast before, but it's the role of faith in people's lives. And I, I think it's it's so much underrepresented in in the larger media landscape. Um, you you talk and, and write openly about your faith. And what, what is the importance of a faith to your career, to your life, and kind of navigating this this industry? You, t- you actually touched on it a little earlier, Steve, when you talked about how so many of the people you know, politics isn't the animating force in their lives. Right. I mean, it's something that impacts them. They have to think about it occasionally, especially as it affects their job or their business. But it's not what it's not their religion. I do think that for some people, politics is their religion. And if if 
politics was my religion, I would be very depressed. And I'm not. I'm a very optimistic person because the center of my life is my faith and my family. And I think for most Americans, that's true. And again, sad that that's not reflected back to them in, you know, morning shows, you know, on the other, you know, broadcast networks, um, ABC, NBC, CBS, sad that it's not reflected back even in movies. I mean, there are television shows, Netflix shows that I watch that are even about family and never mention, like no one has any religion in there. No one has any, doesn't go to church. They never mention God. They go, you know, characters die and parents die and it's these sad moments that you never hear a mention of God. And I just... I I don't think that's reflective of who we are. I get that we're, you know, as a nation and culturally, we're losing those roots, but we still have them. And I think it's important that it's it's reflected back. For me personally, um, it's just the center of my life. I, I don't know how I would, I don't have any other roadmap for how to live or how to raise my kids. Um, this is what my parents passed down to me. It makes sense to me. Um, it gives me a, a sense of foundation and grounding and it gives me perspective. I, I don't feel like I'm losing hope, you know, when I see so many bad things happening in the world and in our country. I feel like I, I kind of know how this story is going to end in the final, final, right? Yeah. That's what my faith has taught me. And I know where I want to go. And when I'm raising my kids, I always say this, Steve, um, I'm kind of famous for saying this. Uh, I My job is not to get my kids into Harvard. It's to get them into heaven. And that has simplified my job as a mom entirely. It just, I don't sweat all the other things and the, you know, lacrosse scholarships and the this and the, I don't sweat it because if, if one goes to University of Chicago and the other becomes a welder and they're both good people, I'm okay with that. I, in fact, I love it. Um, and in fact, I think welders probably contribute a lot more than, <laughs> uh, you know, elite university grads anyway. So I think that that's why it's important to me. And as somebody who comes from reality television and has kind of made my profession out of just being me, that's kind of what I do at Fox. Love that. That's great. Uh, okay. Last thing, six questions, 60 seconds. Where were you born? Okay. I was born in Lake and Heath, England. I'm an Air Force brat. Oh, well. Uh, At the Air Force Base there. I love that. You're the co-host of Fox and Friends Weekend. What's one benefit and one cost of the job? So the hardest part of the job is having to leave my kids (laughs) to get to the show. Um, The benefit of the job is being able to meet amazing guests and talk about all the things that we talk about on the show, which is all the things everyone's talking about around their kitchen tables. Who's someone who's been a mentor for you? Um, a mentor for me. Um, God, I have so many. I I would say there's several mothers that I know in my life who have been mommy mentors to me and people I look up to who I think did a fantastic job with their kids. And I look at what they're doing and, and try to learn from it. That's great. Who's one person you really like professionally or personally that may surprise people? Um, oh God, let me, let me think about that one for a second. Uh, somebody I admire professionally or that might, that, that might surprise people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, God, you're, you're catching me off guard here for a second. Um, I think I would say, well, 
I'll tell you this. There is one person at Fo- the only person at Fox that I fangirl over um, is Maria Bartiromo. Right. <laughs> I'm kind of obsessed with Maria Bartiromo. You know, she's such a uh, she. She broke so many barriers, and you know. Uh, every time she goes, bye, Rach, I like kind of go, I text my husband, I'm like, she called me Rach. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Uh, who is one person in the media you think is really interesting or talented that isn't getting enough attention? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, I would say, oh, God, what, what's his name? He's a podcaster. I can't remember his name. Ah, oh, shit. Been, I've been kind of a little bit obsessed with him too. I can't remember his name, so I can't use him. Oh. Um, actually, I would say that person is Rick Grinnell. I've always admired him. I think he's brilliant, um, and I think that I think his future in the Republican Party is very, very bright. All right, last one. One year from today, what's one prediction for the media? One year from today, well, I definitely think the Republicans are going to take over the House, and I believe that Kamala Harris will be our president. <laughs> Ooh, all right. I, I like do it. believe that. Rachel, thank you so much for your time. That was great. Hey, Steve, thanks so much. Thanks so much to Rachel Campos Duffy. That was great. Remember, Fourth Watch, not just a podcast, it's also a newsletter. You can subscribe for free right now at fourthwatch.media. Join me. Let's build a better media together. If you like the music in the show, as I do, check out the artist who created it, Super Duper. That's Super Duper Music on Instagram. The song is Far From Falling. Download it wherever you get your music. And download this podcast. Like, follow, rate, review, subscribe, wherever you get your podcasts. This was produced at Full Circle Studios in Addison, Texas. Back soon. Stay safe. Talk to you then. find cars like these on auto trader new cars used cars electric cars maybe even flying cars okay no flying cars but as soon as they get invented they'll be on auto trader just you wait auto trader